Hello, everyone. Uh, as usual, this is a live question and answer session, so feel free to type your questions in the box, and I'll check them out at the end and answer any questions. All right, so let's get over some Section 40 basics first. So uh, third-party actions, uh, we're basically asking the question, is someone else to blame for the accident? Uh, the whole point of Section 40, and you'll see in numerous cases, it's designed to prevent double recovery. The rights include a lien, extinguishment of future liability, uh, I put that underlined for reasons we'll talk about in a bit, and subrogation. And in order to perfect your lien reimbursement rights, uh, service of proper notice is required under Section 40D. Uh, the carrier's consent to a third-party settlement, unlike in New York, is not necessary. Uh, but a third, a third, a third is not in the law anywhere, and I just want to be very clear about that. Uh, don't ever get bullied into doing a third, a third, a third if your lien is significant. All right, so what is lienable? In other words, what are we demanding reimbursement for? Uh, disability and medical uh, treatment necessary to cure and relieve per uh, Section 15 of the New Jersey Workers' Compact. So the way I like to phrase this is think of med, temp, and perm. That's basically your lien. Uh, IME fees, court costs, legal expenses, et cetera, are not subject to a lien. Uh, a rehab nurse, maybe if it's designed mostly for the petitioner's treatment. Um, there's no lien allowed on funeral expenses. Um, and payments in a non-compensable case where we're still disputing whether or not we're even going to pay, those are still subject to Section 40. Uh, there is no lien allowed on Section 20. Those are basically the equivalent of your full and final dismissal order in New Jersey. Uh, technically, no lien on amounts paid pursuant to a Section 20 dismissal order, but we have this lovely appellate division decision from 2011, Cali versus Hitachi Power Tools, that basically says the petitioner can contractually agree to reimburse the Section 40 lien. Uh, so you can always draft up a um, settlement consent agreement where the petitioner will agree to reimburse amounts paid pursuant to the Section 20, and it's usually a good idea to put that in the settlement order as well. Um, particularly in the, the petitioner's affidavit if you're not getting live testimony at the settlement approval hearing. Um, there is no lien on additional amputation awards under uh, Section 1221. So what recoveries are subject to a lien? In other words, what can we demand money from? Uh, yes to legal and medical malpractice, yes to un uninsured and underinsured motorist benefit claims, we have this nice language from the New Jersey Supreme Court in Fraser, Fraser versus NJM. Um, the carrier gets reimbursed uh, whether or not the petitioner is fully compensated, uh, and we get a recovery from the tortfeasor or any quote-unquote functionally equivalent source. So there's no such thing as the made whole doctrine when it comes to the petitioner's third-party settlement. Um, we do uh, have a lien on uh, the, or we do get reimbursed from the receivership of an insolvent insurer. So that's when uh, an insurer goes into liquidation and or bankruptcy uh, and then uh, gets placed into ancillary receivership with the state of New Jersey. Benefits paid under that are subject to a lien, but not any balances paid by the Guarantee Association. Uh, there's no reduction to our lien when there are multiple insurers, so if the Guarantee Association is paying part of it and uh, part of a third-party settlement and then there are other insurers contributing, uh, they don't get to offset the amount we don't get from the Guarantee Association from the total lien. They don't get the benefit of a reduction. Um, no lien on Title 59 claims, so that suits against public entities. Uh, Port Authority does not count. You can 
uh, asserted a lien on recoveries, recoveries from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Uh, no lien on per quad claims, so those are your derivative claims, loss of consortium, things of that nature, uh, unless it's gamesmanship. In other words, the court is not going to allow nonsensical allocations just to avoid the carrier's assertion of its lien rights. Uh, yes to a lien on dependency benefits in a wrongful death recovery, but the employee's third-party recovery while they're still alive is not a recovery in favor of dependents. Uh, the inverse of that is you can assert a lien on payments made from lifetime or survival claim to the extent of payments made uh, to the decedent while they're still alive. Um, yes, on suits for intentional wrongs. So those are your uh, laid low Millicent claims in New Jersey uh, for employers or co-workers normally entitled to the protections of Section 8. The workers' comp carrier can assert a lien on those recoveries. Uh, and yes, on recoveries for pain and suffering, aka non-economic damages. So those are all amounts you can recover from. So how do we perfect our lien rights? And this is an area of significant confusion, so I do want to make sure we dive into this here. So we're entitled to reimbursement by law. In other words, you, you are going to get reimbursed even if you effectively really don't do anything. However, uh, to actually perfect your rights uh, requires service of notice pursuant to Section 40D. And Section 40D uh, specifies what the defendants and carriers have to be advised of. In other words, the language of the statute says what you have to say in your lien demand notice. Uh, you have to serve it by a certified mail return receipt requested. And if you do that and you have your proof of service, it creates an obligation to reimburse the lien before uh, the adverse carriers pay $1 to the petitioner. Uh, it's also a good idea just to send lien demand notices over the course of the third-party action to make sure nobody's settling around your lien and to make sure it's accounted for in any settlement negotiations. So subsection D says that we have to put the third-party defendants, uh, their carriers or their attorneys, on notice that they have to inquire into the extent of the lien at the time they go to settle their case, and they have to inquire into plaintiff's counsel's costs and fees so we can determine the reimbursement amount. Then our lien gets priority and it gets paid before anything goes to the petitioner. So the Section 40D notice is powerful leverage and it is necessary to perfect your rights. All right, the reimbursement calculation. It's actually kind of basic. So uh, the statute provides for a maximum, be very clear about that, one-third reduction for attorney's fees and a maximum $750 reduction for costs. Uh, so it's a good idea to get the fee arrangement and closing statement both before the third party action finally resolves and after. In other words, you wanna be able to compare the numbers that you got when you know determining your reimbursement amount with the final numbers from the case. So the way the math shakes out, one third comes off the total amount you've paid to date, then 750 comes off of the remaining amount. Uh, these are the only required reductions. Again, a third, a third, a third is not a thing. Uh, I do want people to consider, especially in your catastrophic injury cases and your high exposure cases, uh, the step-down or sliding scale fee implications under Rule uh, 1-21-7C. Uh, previously, there was, it was a bit murky uh, to figure out how to handle the reduction to our reimbursement amount uh, until this Liberty Mutual Insurance versus Rodriguez case from the Appellate Division in 2019. The easy thing to do is uh, the lower of the average attorney's fee or 33.33%. Uh, so I'll give you an example of how that actually works out. So let's pretend we have a third party action settling for $3 million. Uh, carriers paid 700,000 in workers' comp benefits. The court has not approved a fee arrangement. So I'm putting that in there because 
the plaintiff's attorney can actually apply for a greater fee than what Rule 1,21-7c allows for, but let's pretend that there is no court-approved fee arrangement, so we're just dealing with the law. The third party costs and disbursements total $30,000. So the fee calculation, the first $750,000 under the rule, is at 33.33%. And you can see going down 1, 2, 3, and 4, uh, how I actually, how the math shakes out for each of those. We go down to 30% for the next 750, 25% for the next 750, 20% for the next 750. Anything over $3 million in the settlement does have to be approved by the court in terms of fees. So the total attorney's fee, after we add up all those numbers, is 812,500. Note that one third would have been a million dollars. So this is actually a pretty significant reduction. So pursuant to Rodriguez, we calculate the average fee percent. 812,500 over 3 million equals 27.08%. So how does this work in terms of our reimbursement? Well, 700,000 less 27.08%, um, equals 510,440, and then 510,440 less 750 gives us a maximum current reimbursement of 509,690. This is almost $44,000 more than it would have been had one third been deducted. So it's important to keep this rule and uh, the Rodriguez case in mind. And I really did pick an egregiously high number for costs and disbursements to make this example again, that the costs are capped at 750, the costs reduction to our reimbursement. So even though they had 30,000 and all kinds of expert fees and witness fees and deposition fees and medical and all that other stuff, even though they had $30,000 in costs and disbursements, only 750 came off of our reimbursement. All right, the hairiest area, the reason why we're all here, future credit and offset rights under section 40. So I mentioned earlier at the start of this presentation, the wording release from future liability under section 40B. So that applies if the petitioner recovers more in the third party settlement than what we've paid in comp. Um, we are responsible for one third of the benefits until the petitioner's net settlement is totally offset. Uh, how is medical addressed? Well, there's this case, uh, Rivera versus Metropolitan Maintenance Co, Pellet Division decision from 1984. It actually says the petitioner is responsible for paying out of pocket and then they get reimbursed one third. Uh, but practically, no judge is going to force the petitioner to pay for treatment. So the way this ends up shaking out is usually, since we get to control treatment in New Jersey anyway, we get the bill, we pay them one third, and we say, sorry, if you want the other two thirds, you got to go after the petitioner. Um, indemnity can get complicated in the case of awards. And now we get to Owens versus CNR Waste. Uh, which says we are required to accelerate uh, our one-third future obligation in permanent total disability cases. And note that you can fund that upfront one-third payment with a lien waiver. Um, so that, set, that case specifically applies to permanent total disability, but as we're gonna talk about, uh, sometimes it gets argued that it applies in every sort of permanency case. So you'll see us apply um, the balance of the credit, which is the petitioner's net third-party settlement, against the Section 22 Settlement Order, or an Order Approving Settlement, OAS for short. So uh, we are gonna work through an example, so worry not. But uh, using the prior example, what is our credit amount? Well, we had a $3 million settlement, less 812.5 in attorney's fees, less 30,000 for costs and disbursements, less our reimbursement of 509.690 equals 1,640,810. And I'll note here, even though 750 only comes off our lien for expenses for determining the reimbursement, 
obviously the full 30,000 is coming out of the petitioner's net third party settlement. So technically future benefits would be payable at the one third rate until $1,647,810 is extinguished and payments avoided. Now we have this tension of Owens and our future offset rights. So section 40B does not refer to a future offset. It references a release from further liability. So uh, in Owens, the Supreme Court interpreted this language as the legislature intending the carrier to halt all payments, but the carrier's pro rata share of costs is required up front. So the net takeaway was that the carrier ended up paying one third of its future liability up front and then took a complete holiday in a permanent total disability case. Uh, but we have this case, uh, Fiore versus Trident Construction Co., uh, and it addresses whether, or it addressed rather, whether the employer can get a federal social security disability offset on that accelerated Owens payment. So they paid one third of the permanency award up front, and the uh, respondent tried to argue that they should be allowed to offset the petitioner's federal social security disability payments. Uh, well, the court said no, and this is why this language is key because the carrier is released from liability. In other words, there are no future benefits against which to apply such an offset after the carrier pays its pro rata share of costs up front. And paying one third of the future award, and this is the most important language here, uh, due to the third party settlement is not a commutation or payment of comp compensation. It is a contribution to the litigation costs in exchange for release from the award. So this is not really an acceleration, even though we've been using that term. Uh, legally, this is viewed as the carrier paying a portion of the attorney's fees. Hence, all the offsets that would normally apply to workers' comp benefits don't apply to that one-third accelerated payment up front. So then we have this uh, Andrzejczyk versus Elmora Bake Shop case, uh, which says that for the purposes of determining a reopener date, you're going to count two years from the date the last permanent partial disability payment would have been uh, made despite the Owens acceleration. So you pay one third up front, you take a complete holiday, you still have to count out the number of weeks to figure out when you would have been making that last payment, and then the petitioner has reopener rights two years from that date. Um, it's, this is still a very hazy area with most third-party attorneys and petitioner attorneys. So our practical recommendation here uh, is to try to negotiate ongoing payments at the one-third rate. This is more favorable to the respondent and carrier, uh, and if agreed to, get it in writing. Uh, if they will not agree, you're going to have to put through an order with the workers' comp court uh, memorializing the upfront payment that you're making and the release from future payments do under the PER award as well as the reopener rights date. It's a good idea to get that in the petitioner's affidavit and on the settlement order. So let's look at a full example under section 40. We're going to uh, bring it all together here. So the carriers paid 45,000 in med and temp. The third party case settles for 150. Third party counsel's expenses of suit uh, total $500 and their fee is a third. So the reimbursement due to the carrier is 29,500, two thirds of 45,000, AKA 30,000, uh, minus $500. Again, 750 does not come off automatically. Instead of having that $30,000 example that shows that costs are capped at 750, now I went in the extreme opposite direction showing that if they only have costs of 500, that's all that comes off. The expenses are capped at 750. Uh, <clears throat> so what is the net to the petitioner here? Uh, well, we have uh, $70,000, which is based on 
Uh, the gross third-party settlement, less one-third attorney's fee, less $500, less the reimbursement. Uh, so let's say the parties agree to a Section 20 order approving settlement, uh, and it's a permanent partial disability award of $150 a week for 250 weeks. Uh, total is $37,500 on that. So this is where we reach this inflection point. We can either agree to one-third ongoing payments, uh, or if the uh, petitioner's attorney is going to insist on Owens, we have to account for that in the order approving settlement. So if the parties agree on ongoing payments at the one-third rate, it's pretty easy. Carrier is going to reduce benefit payments to the $50 rate, one-third, while deducting $150 weekly from the balance of your credit. The full amount of the award weekly comes off because otherwise you're not really contributing to attorney's fees if you're continuing to take a credit instead of deducting the full amount of the payment. Uh, under Owens, if let's say we can get an agreement, uh, we're going to pay $12,500 to the petitioner up front in fresh money, so one-third of $37,500, and then we make no permanent partial disability benefit payments. And then we'll deduct the firm award from the balance of the credit, so $70,000 minus $37,500. We have $32,500 available for a reopener offset, which again would be two years from the date the last PPD payment would have been due. All right. We'll go very quickly through subrogation under Section 40F. It's right one year after the date of loss, uh, upon 10 days written demand, the petitioner can waive that. So if you're close to the statute of limitations, you can always send out a process server and get the petitioner to sign off on something saying, I don't need 10 days notice. The case that says you can do that is Poets versus Mix. Uh, the 40F notice uh, is almost always worth serving immediately after you get to that year mark. Uh, in other words, when it's right. Because number one, it lights a fire to get that third-party action going, and number two, it creates leverage. And what, I, what do I mean by leverage? You get to say, hey, listen, we're not going to go for a third, a third, a third, because if you decide to uh, abandon the case because we're not compromising, we'll just pick up the ball and prosecute it ourselves. I'm sure they'll, they'll be happy to reimburse us in full uh, instead of paying you non-economic damages. So it's powerful leverage. Uh, it's a shame this is an unpublished decision, El Hulu versus Lipinski, because it's one of the only ones that really discusses uh, the respective rights of the parties after Section 40F subrogation. But anyway, um, no need for the petitioner's consent to settle. In other words, once we invoke this right, it cuts off the petitioner's right to participate. Um, their right of recovery is limited to what we recover in excess of the lien. So if we have no future liability, i.e. we resolve the case via Section 20, we're not trying to get anything over the recovery of Arlene. There is no attorney-client relationship created with the petitioner if we subrogate. Uh, it serves as a bar to the petitioner's own action, uh, and there is no further notice required to the, to the petitioner once we serve that 40F 10-day notice. We don't need to ask them if they're okay with the settlement. We don't need to you know, confirm that they're okay with us stipulating to dismiss the case. Once we do that, they're out. Brief word on the verbal threshold. So this is ACRA, the Automobile Insurance Cost Reduction Act. Uh, the petitioner's own policy basically can bar suits for non-economic damages unless they have one of six qualifying injuries. They're listed in the statute, death, dismemberment, loss of a fetus, etc. So uh, the courts have addressed ACRA versus Section 40, and basically the carrier is entitled to reimbursement from the tortfeasors even though the employee would not be able to recover medical expenses and wage loss from his own automobile insurer or non-economic damages from the tortfeasors. And we have this evolution of cases ultimately culminating in New Jersey Transit Corp 
ASO McCurgliano versus Sanchez, ultimately affirmed by a split Supreme Court. The long story short is in these soft tissue injury cases where the petitioner doesn't have a case, you can still subrogate under Section 40F. All right, expert tips. Investigate subrogation potential at the outset. You have the facts. Look to see if there's a third-party action. You want to start calendaring that 40F notice date a year out. You want to get the 40D notice out to the defendants as soon as possible. Don't settle for a third, a third, a third. It's not a thing. Don't let anyone tell you it is. Uh, get an itemized closing statement reflecting costs and disbursements in the attorney fee arrangement and the net to petitioner, both before you agree on the reimbursement amount and after the case settles. Serve the Section 40D notice properly, in other words, certified mail return receipt requested on all defendants, their carriers, their attorneys, and keep parties apprised of the lien throughout the third-party action while it's pending. Uh, keep an eye out for the possibility of a global settlement. It's the best way to cut off exposure and maximize your lien and credit. So a global settlement would be maybe a partial lien waiver in exchange for closing out the comp case. Uh, closely monitor the third-party action. Uh, you can even sometimes use discovery in the workers' comp case and be prepared to intervene if necessary. So you can actually get deposition transcripts and compare them to what the petitioner is alleging in your case. And you might find out about uh, work the petitioner has been doing or medical providers you can subpoena records from that you were unaware of. Sometimes this third-party action testimony is very helpful for your own defense and investigation. Uh, make sure you properly negotiate, calculate, and apply your offset rights. Either agree to the one-third ongoing rate in writing or address Owens in your settlement order. Uh, and reserve Section 40 rights on Section 20 payments as a term of the settlement agreement. They won't always agree to it. If they're smart, they will not, but you can create a contractual obligation to reimburse the Section 20. You just got to put it on the settlement order, make sure the petitioner confirms they understand it in the affidavit or by a testimony, and get a written agreement saying it, which is basically a contractual settlement agreement. All right, let's see if we have any uh, questions right about the 20 minute mark. Gotta, always got to pop them out just to make sure we. Uh, we see everything. So let's see. Uh, does the Section 40F notice have to be served in the same manner as the Section 40D notice, i.e. regular and certified mail return receipt requested? The answer is no per the statute. Section 40F doesn't specify the manner in which it should be served. It doesn't say by registered mail return receipt like it does in Section 40D. However, if you think about it practically in the litigation of your case, if the defendants raise the uh, issue that you're not properly subrogating under Section 40F, in other words, you don't have standing to prosecute this case, it is a very, very, very good idea to be, prove that, to be able to prove that you did serve the Section 40F demand notice. So as a practical matter, while not required by statute, we either do personal service, so that we have an affidavit of service from a process server showing it was served, or certified mail return receipt requested, and then when we file our 40F subrogation complaint, we attach the note, the Section 40F notice uh, and the proof of service to show that we have standing to prosecute this case. So no, not required, yes, do it anyway. Uh, what do you do if the third party attorney refuses to hand over the settlement statement uh, or sends an unsigned copy? So there's really no requirement that they send uh, a signed copy of the settlement statement. And you're right, sometimes they're actually going to be cagey about this and they uh, engage in a little bit of gamesmanship and won't send it to you. So at that point, um, 
you have to agree to the Section 40 reimbursement amount, one way or the other. They, they shouldn't be able, well, your consent is not required. There's no requirement that you cash the check that they ultimately send you either. So I mentioned earlier in the presentation, be prepared to formally intervene. Uh, in the third party action itself, at that point, if you're concerned uh, that maybe your lien's getting played around with or they're hiding some reimbursement from you or being dodgy about their costs and fees, that's your opportunity to step into the case. And it could either be a motion to enforce litigants' rights to get a copy of the settlement statement. You could also, in the alternative, uh, bear in mind that the defendants and the adverse carrier, uh, they're going to want to get a release, a general release from liability signed off on by the plaintiff. So you have other sources as well. You can always reach out to them and see if you can get a copy of the settlement documents. But the short answer is, if you're not comfortable to uh, taking their word for it, your next step is to formally intervene in the civil action and not accept the reimbursement they send you. Do you have any other resources available to review and learn more about this topic? So uh, yes, we do have uh, we do have some website articles out there on Section 40. Uh, in New York, we do have a risk transfer handbook. We're working on getting out a New Jersey version of that as well, probably publish them together. So ultimately, that will be available. Um, but we do have um, prior trainings on Section 40 done by me, Greg Lois, our New Jersey team, viewable in the webinar archive. Uh, there's a couple articles I wrote and I put up there. Uh, and as always, you can feel free to reach out to me directly with any questions. It's just cmajor at loisllc.com. Uh, if I don't get back to you within a day, call Greg Lois and rat on me. All right. Uh, can you please go back to the full Section 40 example and clarify why we would deduct 150 weekly from the balance of the credit and not 100? I love this question. Thank you, Tracy Moore. Um, this is a uh, this is a fantastic question, and it goes into legal theory a bit. So. If you think about it, the statute requires us, by its words, to contribute one-third to the petitioner's litigation costs, right? So out of every $150 payment we're making, we are required statutorily to contribute one uh, to contribute 50 to that, contribute one-third. So that's why we're making the ongoing one-third payment. Now let's pretend we have a credit running of, I don't know, $30,000. Why are we deducting 150 instead of just 100? Because if we only deduct 100, we are not actually contributing $50 uh, to litigation costs. We're continuing to avoid, or we're continuing to take a credit for an additional $50 weekly by not deducting it. In other words, we're inflating the overall balance of the credit um, by only deducting 100 instead of 150. So it's a little sort of like high concept math to think about mentally without really doing it on paper. But if you think about it just practically, uh, if you're not deducting the full balance weekly from your credit, um, you are not actually paying for one-third because you're continuing to take a credit on that one-third. Uh, you're not deducting it from the balance of the petitioner's net third-party settlement. Uh, one thing I will note here, though, is that while this is how it works legally, both in New York and New Jersey, uh, a lot of plaintiff's attorneys are not really clear on this. And particularly in New York, where you have the opportunity to prepare a third-party settlement consent agreement memorializing your offset rights, if they'll agree that only two-thirds of the payment gets deducted from your credit weekly, why not have at it contractually and agree to it? But legally, this is how it should work. Otherwise, you're not actually paying anything. You're continuing to take a credit for that extra $50 when you should have been paying for it as part of your responsibility for litigation costs. 
I hope that answers the question. If it, if it doesn't, feel free to give me a call or shoot me an email. We can talk about it further. Oh, that makes sense. Thank you. I appreciate the closure on that. Normally, <laughs> normally people don't let me know uh, if, I, if I answered the question or not. So I, I appreciate the follow-up. Uh, unless I'm missing something, uh, that looks like it for the questions. But as always, uh, I am available via phone call or email if you ever need to reach me or Greg or any of our New Jersey team on this. Uh, Cmajor at LoisLLC.com. Uh, in the interim, thank everyone for joining. Thank you, everybody, and I hope to see you next month. I hope you found this helpful.